Well, welcome to the village, everybody. We are in a book called Haggai, and that is on page 937 in your black Bible. It's at the near the end of the Old Testament, um, and it is a minor prophet. Now, when you say minor prophet, you certainly are not meaning that it's less important. It's just simply it's talking about the length of the prophets. So Isaiah is a very long prophet, lots of chapters. Haggai is just a couple pages, maybe a page and a half. Now, you might ask why we would look at an Old Testament prophet, and you might even ask what the Old Testament is, but let me, so let me clarify that. The Old Testament literally means Old Promise or Old Covenant, and the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, is the New, is the New Promise. And so, the Old Testament is all about God's story, the creating of the earth, the calling out of a nation, and then that nation's Israel, its relationship with God. And ultimately, in that relationship, sort of the discovery, which is pretty obvious through most of the Old Testament, that we just keep running from God, and we need God to save us, because we can't save ourselves. And so the New Testament is Jesus' story. It's Jesus becoming man. It's Jesus literally becoming Israel. God becoming Israel and fulfilling what Israel could not do. He steps in and he dies for you and I and he raises from the dead. And so those are kind of these two stories make up the Bible. Now Haggai is an interesting story and you might ask, okay, well, why are we doing this? Well, it's the beginning of the year. And when we started the year, I asked how many of you make resolutions and like two of you raised your hand because we're good villagers, we're anti that resolution thing, because if we make a resolution, we know that we won't do it anyway, so why make the resolution? And I said, well, no, no, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're in a constant process of making resolutions and thinking about things. And that is what Haggai is all about. It's about starting something and thinking about where you've been. So the story sort of starts this way. Israel got overrun by the Babylonians. And they got stuck in slavery, basically, or exile from their land for 70 years. 70 years later, they head back to Jerusalem. They're sent back by the Persians. They're allowed to go. And they begin to build things. And instead of building the temple, which they're supposed to start with, um, they, they begin to build their homes. They begin to build walls. They begin to put things together. Um, and it's not that they've walked away from God, but they, um, they know they're supposed to build the temple, and it's kind of, they kind of do the thing that you and I do. There's something God is saying to you, you need to change this in your life. You need to deal with this. This is a way you need to be honoring me. And we're like, well, right, but I gotta get this thing in front of me done now. I'll do that later. And so they were kind of saying that about getting God's temple built. Was, I'll get to that later. Right? All of us have these, I'll get to that later things in our life that God just sort of is whispering in our ear, you need to get to this. And we're like, well, but first I need to do this thing in front of me. And so Haggai is this prophet who has some different prophecies that he gives to Israel. And they're basically like, hey guys, it's time to reorient yourself and get to doing the temple You've kind of lived out sort of a frustrated life, and the reason that you've lived out a frustrated life is because you've been driven by the tyranny of the urgent, the now, and you haven't been working on my temple, because the temple is the center of worship, 
It's how you kind of center yourself as an Israelite. And you guys have been neglecting that. You haven't been centered. You need to deal with it. The Israelites are like, oh, yep, we do. Let's do that. So they start building the temple. Only it's rather difficult. And it's not as exciting as they had hoped. And some of the people who had seen Solomon's temple, the first temple, were a little disappointed at the dinky temple they were putting together. Like it was discouraging. right? And I kind of said to you, that is when you decide, like, hey, this is a thing in my life. I'm going to change the way I'm parenting. God's calling me to love my children in a certain way. I'm going, to, I'm going to deal with my anger. We can go down the list of things that God might be asking you to do. Maybe it's simply, you know, even going on a diet or being more physically active. Whatever it is, you know that when you begin to start it, it's actually very disappointing. Because, especially, like, let's just talk about physical exercise. If you were ever an athlete, and then you stop working out, and then you wait a couple years and you decide to work out again, you're like, man, this isn't anything like it used to be. Like, I used to be good, and now I stink. And I'd rather not stink, so I'm not going to do this anymore. But that's how most of our disciplines, when we begin to approach them, are the things that God really just wants us to work on. They're kind of a little disappointing, they're a little discouraging in the beginning, because we meet a certain level of opposition. Either the world or ourselves. Or Satan pushes against us. So tonight we're finishing Haggai chapter 2. We're going to go into verse 20. And in this part, God is giving a message to the leader. His name is Zerubbabel. And God addresses him directly. Now, you need to understand Zerubbabel's situation before we, and why God might address him directly. Okay? Zerubbabel comes with a bunch of people to where Jerusalem is, and there is no landmarks left. It doesn't look like it's supposed to look. There are no walls, no houses. Not only that, there's no temple, and there's a foreign militia wandering around, and there are all these other people who say they own the land. And so it's a really stressful experience. And Zerubbabel is supposed to lead these people to do this. Now, 16 years later, he's supposed to lead them to build a temple. Right? And he's discouraged. Now, I can speak from experience. Being a leader is extremely discouraging. Right? Because if you're a dumb sheep, right? Jesus refers to us as sheep. I'm a dumb sheep. And I ask me as a dumb sheep trying to lead a bunch of dumb sheep. It's really discouraging because you're all dumb and I'm dumb. And so most of us are laying on our side going like like this in a clover field somewhere, bloated and in pain, right? And that becomes very discouraging because the reality is is that when we try to follow Jesus, right, we run into something. And that is that Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to live a life that's transforming, well, then you're going to have to do this thing, like take up a cross and deny yourself. Which, you start trying to do that, and it just becomes discouraging. And so, God is going to address the leader who's leading people, because he's, he's, I suspect, and I'm kind of reading into this, is that he's discouraged. And he needs to be talked to directly. Now, for those of you who don't know, the way our church is sort of made up is a couple ways. Number one, we meet here. We talk about God, we sing, we eat together. But then we have men and women's Bible studies and we call them pilgrim groups. 
But then we have these larger groups that meet once a month that are called monastic communities. And it's just a bunch of people getting together, kids, single people, married people. We all get together around a table. Um, most often, normally, most of us wouldn't be friends. So we're all pushed together somehow. And we're practicing community together. Okay? And in that, one was at my house recently, and what we do is we have dinner. We have this little like table discussion questions that you can go online. I guess it's called table talk or something like that for families. They have great questions. Our kids seem to think it's the greatest thing at dinner now. They think that we should just stop talking and pull out the questions and ask them because apparently parents don't ask good enough questions. So we use them in the monastic community, and the monastic communities love it. At least ours does. And so one of the questions that was at the table was, what makes a good teacher? And, and what I, I realized as we were talking, we had a couple of teachers there, so they gave their opinions about what makes a good teacher. And I, I realized is that everybody is a teacher at some level, right? Some of us do it professionally, but we're all teaching. People are watching you and observing, and you're instructing them in some way, right? Even if you're a little kid, you're leading the dog, right, or the cat. Even if the dog or cat or the rabbit doesn't want to go that way, you're leading it or you're teaching it that it needs to go that way, right? We're all teaching in some way. Well, that's the same truth about leaders. Some of us, like me, I'm sitting up here, I'm a leader. There are others in the community who are leaders. Some of you are in leaders in industry and all those different kinds of things. But all of us are leading at some level. People are following you. Little kids are following you. Animals are following you. Right? You have some kind of following. And so at some level, you can understand the powerlessness it, that a leader feels. Because I can't, you can't, make other people do what you want them to do. Right? You can't. People don't do what you want them to do. You're just lucky. Right? It's just a roll of the dice. Because that's how you feel as a leader. So here we have Zerubo with this big old project, and he's discouraged. And God wants to speak some encouragement to him. Before we get that to that, though, I want to just take a little rabbit trail very quickly because I know some of you are relatively new with us at the village. And so I need to introduce you to my favorite verse. Right? This may or may not have anything to do with sermon tonight, but I feel like I need to tell you this. Okay, So I'm going to quickly turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, and I'm going to read it to you very quickly. The writer of Hebrews, it's in the New Testament, says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. One of the main things that God calls the church to is actually encouragement. So here we have Zerubbabel who is lacking courage. My guess is most of you find yourself in places in life, at least on a daily basis, if not on a weekly basis, where you lack courage in the things that God is calling you to do. Right? But Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says that you and I have to get together. And the reason that we have to get together is that we need to consider one another. Like the community of God needs to be the place where we're thinking about each other to the point where we're irritating each other onto love and good deeds. Irritating people is easy. Irritating people onto love and good deeds 
is difficult. Right? The way that I can irritate you towards loving good deeds is I actually have to think about you. The only way I think about you is if I see you. Right? The only way you think about me often is if you see me. So coming on Sunday night, going to pilgrim group, going to monastic community, getting inside each other's homes, that is the way that you find encouragement. If people are actually saying, what does Eric Sipa need? That'd be me. Let me irritate him towards loving good deeds. Right? And if you do that, then you're doing what God, I think, does for Zerubbabel. He sees that Zerubbabel is in a place where he's discouraged, and he speaks to him. Now, before we get to what he says, I want to explain to you the situation that most of us find ourselves in when we're discouraged, and why. Especially when it's you setting out to do what God's called you to do in your life. From parenting, to your marriage, to a job, to facing somebody you're afraid of, to dealing with things in your life you've just resisted, all those things. If you imagine an hourglass, and you turn it sideways, and on one side of that hourglass is just you living your happy life, and then God says, hey, you need to work on this thing, and come follow me. So what he says is, to follow me, you're going to have to squeeze through the middle of the hourglass. See, most of us find ourselves in our discouragement squeezed in the middle of the hourglass. right, With our feet dangling out one side, and our hands dangling out the other, going, oh shoot, God, like how do we get, how do we follow you? That's where discouragement happens. That's why the community of God is here, to speak each other through the middle of the hourglass. And here's where God, what God says to Zerubbabel to encourage him. Verse 20, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses, their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. So the first thing that God tells this king, or he's actually a governor, says to him, is I'm the one who's going to shake heaven and earth and I'm going to deal with all the nations around you. Which, you can translate this, this way. It's not about you, it's about me. Right? It's not about you, it's about me. The first way that God steps into our life to encourage us, to speak truth to us, is that he speaks to the uncertainty, and the lack of the feeling of safety in our life, right? Most of us really, really long to be safe. The world doesn't seem safe. We feel out of control. We begin to grasp. We begin to freak out. And the first thing that God says is, it's not about you, it's about me. And here's what he means in a simple way. A few years ago, gas was like three fifty dollars a gallon. Now with a discount card, you can get it for $1.30. Three or four years ago, or maybe two years ago, we were all freaked out selling our firstborn and buying Priuses. Now we happily drive and guzzle gas because, heck, it's $1.30. And we had all these theories. But guess what? You're not in control of the gas prices. 
an easy one, right? You're not in control. But then things happen, like the Yakely story with Tamirian. One day, two weeks ago, on a weekend, mom and dad are giving a bath, and all of a sudden you realize there's a lump on your child, and then by Friday they're in surgery and she has cancer. You're not in control. We're not in control. That freaks us out. And the way that God speaks to our hearts, the way he speaks to Zerubbabel's heart, is to say, I'm the one who's going to shake the heavens. I'm the one who's going to take care of things. This is not about you. It's about me and what I'm doing. Now, for some of you, you might say, well, that's not very reassuring. It's not, at some level. But when God says, I'm going to shake the heavens, and I'm going to do these things, what he's doing is he's establishing that he's the biggest, strongest dad in the world. Like he's establishing who he is before he speaks something very tender to Zerubbabel's heart. You can't really hear and believe what God says unless he establishes for you who he is. And says, no matter what, I've got this. No matter what it looks like in life, I've got this. And so he speaks to probably Zerubbabel's kind of freaking out about all the people trying to interfere with the building of the temple and all the people trying to stop the Israelites from building Jerusalem up. And then he speaks to to Zerubbabel's heart in verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shelatel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, most of us don't know much about signet rings, but we've seen enough, you know, medieval shows to know that kings wear rings and then when they imprint it on the wax on some kind of piece of parchment, that parchment holds a certain amount of authority, right? Or if the ambassador has a ring on of that king, then he speaks for the king's authority, right? So, it seems just in the easy reading of this, if we know nothing about the Old Testament, that at least what God is saying to Zerubbabel is that I'm behind you. Whatever you decide to do, I'm with you. Right? I'm with you. Which is a good thing. If God says, I'm the biggest, and it's not about you, it's about me, and then the next thing he says is, I'm standing with you, that seems, that seems to be good. But here's the thing. All of us have a story. You hear this at the village all the time. All of us have a story. Yes, you have a story. The things in your past make up your identity and who you are. The good experiences, the bad experiences, the choices you've made, and they affect the way that you filter reality in front of you. Okay? So as you're in these places of discouragement where you're like, okay, God's calling me in this direction and I'm headed here, we discouragement comes from a filter usually of what we understand about life and what we believe about ourselves. And from reading Haggai, you might not know Zerubbabel's story. So let me tell you about Zerubbabel's grandfather, and then we can kind of conjecture about how Zerubbabel might feel. You see, 70 or 80 years, or probably 90 years earlier, Zerubbabel's grandfather was an absolute 
you know, donkey, right? He had basically completely abandoned God, and the Babylonians are going to take him into exile. But here's what God, just in a little bit, we won't read everything that's said about him, but here's what God has to say through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 22 about Zerubbabel's grandfather. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will hand you over to those who seek your life, for those you fear, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country, where neither of you was born, and there you both will die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. And if you jump to verse 30, he says this, This is what the Lord says, Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit down, sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. So, here we have Zerubbabel. His grandfather has a curse. Well, Hebrew men and women take curses and blessings as important things that get passed on, but they take curses and blessings that are given to your family by God really seriously. So here you have Zerubbabel trying to build the temple as the governor, not the king, knowing that his grandfather is cursed and Basically, God said to his grandfather, it's it, I'm done with you, and your descendants aren't going to sit on the throne. It's done, it's over. And so in this little message to Zerubbabel, God says, guess what? I'm involved in your story, and though your grandfather has a curse, I'm going to change everything. My grace is going to change. So you know what I said to your grandfather? If he was a signet ring, I would yank him off and throw him away. You know what I'm going to say to you? More than you are my signet ring. So he speaks to the doubt I suspect that Zerubbabel has even about his ability to lead. He speaks to that. He says, this is who you are. Now here's the thing. When you're discouraged, the one, two questions you have. One is, am I safe? And two, am I significant? As I wrestle with the things that God's called me to wrestle with, do I matter at all? Does he actually care? Well, as we watch how he interacts with Zerubbabel, we know that the answer is yes. God cares. But it goes on even more. If you, I'm not going to read this, but if you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, you will see in the genealogy of Jesus, guess who shows up? Zerubbabel's grandfather and Zerubbabel. And if you go to Luke chapter 1, Verse 32, and you read the story of Gabriel talking to, the angel Gabriel talking to Mary about Jesus, who's now in the line of Zerubbabel, the God of the universe. He says, guess what? Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David forever. So what is said by God to Zerubbabel to speak into his story is, guess what? I'm behind you. I have removed the curse. I'm with you. And your 
at the beginning of things. You're starting things. You see, all that shaking the earth and, and crushing the enemies, what he said is, he's saying is, guess what? You are beginning me entering in and transforming everything. You matter. You're important. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep moving. Now, as we've walked through Haggai, I've given you a couple assignments. Right? One of the reasons I've been giving assignments is the leaders, a couple of them anyway, there might be a battle in the leadership as to if this is true, said, we need more assignments. Um, some said, no, we don't. Others said, yes. So I went with the yeses. Um, and so I gave you a couple of assignments. One of the assignments, and I'm just going to remind you of them very quickly, was to write 20 prayers. 20 prayers that kind of dealt with yourself, your family, the larger community of this church. That you'd pray all year. And the second thing I asked was that you would go through a list of kind of an inventory that I gave you. If you want that inventory, it'll be in the email again. I've sent it out a couple of times. To ask, okay, does the rule of Christ, His peace, rule in this area, my emotional life, my spiritual life, my physical life, does, does, he, does God rule here, or are there things that need to come under the rule of God? Right? So that was the assignment. The end of Haggai is, while you're in the middle of maybe trying to do Eric's assignment, or follow through with some other things that God might be calling you to do, and you're discouraged, I want you to grab onto what God says to Zerubbabel. He says, you're safe. I'm the big guy. It's not about you. It's about me. And number two, you're significant. You're important. You're part of the story. You're part of God's story, and he will speak directly to you. Now, I want to go back to Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 because us as a community have a role as the people who speak into one another's lives. Our job is to think about one another and say, where does Eric need to have God reestablished in his life? Where does Eric need to have God like, hey, Eric, God is sovereign. God is the ruler here. It's not about you. And where does Eric need just some, hey, you're important, and here's how God is using you. Right? We're those people in another's lives because it's so easy to lose courage. So let me give you a couple applications just to think through tonight as you go away. Number one, if you're kind of wrestling with being discouraged, I want you to think about four things. And I've talked about these before, and you'll hear me talk about them all year because I think they're kind of themes in our church this year. But if you're wrestling with discouragement, or you see other people wrestling with discouragement, here's some places you can enter. Number one, most of the time we're discouraged when we feel guilty. Right? Guilt is a big part of discouragement. And guilt means that I owe somebody something. Now, even if I legitimately owe somebody something, I can never pay them back, right? Especially if it's relational. I can't pay them back, even if, even if it's legitimate that I feel guilty about this, right? But guilt kills our heart and we begin to get discouraged. Anger is the second thing. 
So you got guilt. Anger is people owe me. And anger kills our heart. And we eventually get discouraged because things seem pointless because people need to do what I want people to do right now. Right? They owe me. We often operate in that in most of the areas of life. That person owes me or I owe them. There's two others that attack our hearts that I just want you to think through. One is greed. And a lot of us say, well, I'm not greedy. Well, you're an American, so it is part of your DNA. Okay, so, so you are greedy. And greedy really is just, I owe me. I gotta get mine. I gotta make sure I'm okay. I gotta get the things I need. Right? I owe me. Destroys your heart. It creates a discouragement with what's going on in your life and what you're doing. And the last one is, is jealousy. And it's, it's not jealousy of other people. If you're jealous of somebody else, you're not really jealous of them. You're jealous of God. Right? Because you're like, God, like, you're like, God owes me. When you're jealous of somebody, you're like, God owes me. Why did Ron get this? Ron got this. And I didn't. God, you owe me. Right? You owe me. So, let me go to that. I owe someone. Other people owe me. I owe myself. God owes me. These are parts that create discouragement in us. So as you listen to people talk to you, listen for, well, are you saying that other people owe you? You feel like you owe that person? Like, listen for these. Think about it in your own life when you're feeling these emotions as you wrestle with things. So, we're finished with Haggai. And I just want to kind of let you know kind of what's going to happen for the next year or so. So next week I'm going to talk about Lent. And the reason that we do Lent here, we, we kind of follow the church calendar in a lot of ways. We do Advent, we do Lent, um, we don't do Epiphany, but those two, Advent and Lent, are something that we kind of hang on to in the church calendar. Now Lent is the 40 days before Easter. And Lent is a really somber time, because what it is, is it's a time when you focus on your relationship with Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross. Now, to go back to my message, if you're questioning if God thinks you're significant, this is why we enter into Lent. Because the God of the universe came and was fully man and fully God and he died for you. He poured out his heart and his life and everything for you. So for us to understand our significance on a regular basis, we have to be in the process of reflecting on what Christ has done on the cross for us. So that's why we take Lent seriously. And in Lent, basically what you do is you choose something to add or something to abstain from, usually something to abstain from, so that you're creating space to reflect. Right? So if you normally watch a lot of TV, Maybe you take a chunk of that TV away and choose to intentionally focus on the cross, focus on what Jesus has done for you, begin to get ready to be excited about Easter and about Jesus raising from the dead. So we're gonna look at Lent, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about prayer all the way through Lent. And then after Lent, we're gonna go through the Apostles' Creed. After we go through the Apostles' Creed, we're gonna do a two-week series on the Song of Solomon. Yay, I will give you guys heads up about content for children. Um, then we will do James and um, 
I think James is how we're rounding out the, oh, and then we're going to do the spiritual gifts at the end of the year. So that's kind of how everything lays out. Um, somebody, well, I have a watch now. My kids gave me a watch. All right, awesome. Thank you, kids. I don't have to ask what time is anymore. Um, I got about two minutes. Anybody have any questions about the message? Anything that they want to get clarified? Um, explained better? Don't agree with? Ah, no questions. Awesome. That's unusual for the village, but that's fine. I, oh, there. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Uh-huh. Yes. That's right. So in a moment of Zerubel's crisis where he, people may not be taking him seriously, yes, God said, you need to take this man seriously. Which is a great encouragement to have the God of the universe say, take him seriously. Anybody else? Got anything else they want to say? All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we want to first praise you for what you did in Miriam's life, and we just want to continue to lift her up to you um, and ask that you would continue the healing process um, and that this chemotherapy would be super, super minimal. um, And God, just ask for a complete healing in her life. And as the family goes through this process, I just ask that you would give them endurance and faith and joy in the midst of all that. God, thank you for this community, and I just pray that you bless the rest of our time.